Hello, peace lovers and peacemakers. I'm Sarah Jamshidi. You are listening to Peace Mindedly. I have a guest here with me that it's very special to me. I am I am not sure if I can be very objective and very unbiased about my guest. Laura Sanderson and I know each other for more than 17 years now. I first met Laura at Women and Democracy Retreat in 2003. My English at the time was too broken, <laughs> even more broken than now, but somehow we understood each other really well. We talked about Iran, about Rumi, about my unsuccessful kidnapping in Tehran, about her sister, her family, and her studies at the Seattle University. In 2006, Laura won American Marshall Fellowship. She sent me pictures from Germany when she was pretending to hold the European Union stars in her hand. Although, although her career was at the peak, she decided to drop everything and pursue a different path. So here we're going to learn about Laura Sanderson's reawakening path and about her sister, her garden, her journey, and so much more. And also about a few projects that she takes on with her husband to, to help great causes. Before I welcome Sarah to my studio, I have another confession to make. Okay, so there you go. My legal name is Saide, and many of my friends know me as Saide. However, I forced, forced to change my name by my grandma. So my grandma is a huge, big figure back in Tehran. I made a promise to Sarah Sultan to name my daughter after her. When uh, my daughter was born, I forgot the promise. And then my grandma kept reminding me of what happened to the promise. So since I couldn't make my daughter to change her name, I changed mine. So here, Laura may call me Saide, and we are both the same people. Here, I'm welcoming Laura Sanderson. Hi, Laura Jan. Mm -hmm. Hi. Yes. Hello, hello, hello. Okay, Laura, I'm so Lovely excited. Hi, about our conversation. And I go to, to the heart of the issue, and I'm so excited mm. to know about the issue. Laura, what happened and why you decided that at the peak of your career, mm. you want to just do something else? Oh, thank you. That's a it's a big question and a beautiful question. I've actually spent about a uh, decade processing and writing about this, actually, you know, any sort of spiritual path, I think, starts long before we acknowledge it beginning. Um, as you and I know, when you and I met, though we were very involved in politics and working in politics, we shared a love of God. And uh, before I go too far into this, I just want to A, say happy Ramadan. <laughs> happy and Ramadan. Say B, that when I use the word God, I want listeners to substitute whatever feels right to them, whatever that is for you, whether it's nature or consciousness or awareness or goddess or your mom, I mean, your grandma, I don't know what it is, but most of us have something that possesses that expansive totality of, of what we know life is um, both inside and outside of us. So just use God as shorthand for that so that everybody's welcome here today in this conversation. I will start a decade ago because though as a child, I 
was born an innate lover of God and source and knowing that there was something much bigger than me, sometimes even questioning why I had come back again. I did lose sight of that over the years. You know, we go into a, um, Western education, we're taught to think linear, we're maybe even taught to think like a man, to be hyper-rational, to have everything figured out. And I do remember as a child, I found that very disconcerting, that I didn't know that it was a linear process. And I didn't know that we were meant to force ourselves into one single cookie cutter of a mold, as we are often told we are to be successful. So that said, almost a decade and now ago, I lost my big sister to an overdose. And we were very, very close. And though I knew that was going to happen on her path years before it occurred, the moment of its happening is, is of course, a, a great finality. And I was not able to be there with her in person. To my surprise, not to my surprise, we had a tremendous amount of communication from what I will call the subtle realms once she had actually left her body. And sort of navigating her through that process to, I will call it, unhitch herself from her body and to really leave and to cross over and to go into the light and her next great adventure, I learned a tremendous amount. And with that, I really, I remember the day I received the news that she had died, Saida, and I sat looking out my window and I was given... I don't know if many of you have probably experienced this in large moments of your life, maybe even traumatic moments where it's almost as though multiple pictures will play in your mind's eye at once and paths and scenarios. And I was gifted a vision of women around the globe, uh, war-torn countries, Africa, some of the women that have seen their children murdered in front of them. Somehow I knew they all ended up okay. And not only did they end up okay, they ended up better or more whole, more of service, more giving, more loving, more of what they were always meant to be as human beings. And that gave me really great hope. And then I heard this very small whisper of a voice that said, the only way through this, or, or the only way out of this is to go through, meaning I knew there could be no avoidance of dealing with this shattering moment. And that's really when I turned to my meditation. I remember your sister was very young, very, very yes. young. Yes. And then not only her, you also lost your mom. Yes. And then going through grief, what did you, what did you learn? Hmm. Well, first of all, the, you know, for me, it started literally very simple. I asked myself or I heard, or my, I will say my truest self told me to sit down each morning for five minutes was about what I could do and to close my eyes and to go inside. And grief has many colors and textures and feelings. Uh, sometimes it will cause a contraction in your heart center, very common. And I learned to sit inside of the literally the, the feeling of that pain or sensitivity or sometimes texture each day and, and watch it, to really observe it and to kind of allow it to be its own thing without judgment on my behalf, if that makes sense. You're talking about texture, mm -hmm. going mm -hmm. inside, just observing. Mm -hmm. What was that experience for you? The lineage I follow is more through the Kashmir Shaivism Hindu lineage. And I have a little sort of secret help in the sense that my father was a, a Siddha Yogi for many, many years and a devotee of Guru Mai. So I grew up hearing mantra and hearing how to do these things 
But to be perfectly candid, you know, it all goes out the window when you go through your own personal trauma. Unless you've been practicing for a long time before the trauma, it is like starting like a, a baby, a neophyte. So in the beginning, people will say, now, was it easy? It all seems easy. Well, I've been practicing nine and a half, 10 years almost, right? Any feeling, any emotion, any thought we have is, it's energy. It's all energy. And when you sit in any energetic state long enough, if you can manage to not reject it and simply observe it and respect it for what it is or what it wants to tell you, you have the opportunity to go beneath the energy or the thought and see the source. And most commonly that that blankness or the stillness that people get to is sort of, if you think of like, um, I like to use it like a galaxy, right? Because the galaxy seems like the big black vast sky, but then we see stars and we see movement and it's like, it comes closer and closer to earth. We see more and more activity, more and more forms, but it's really the form coming out of the formless. And that would be my expression of what I experience in deep meditation is that you reach sort of the source place, which has always existed, will always exist, is existing even in the background right now as you and I are sitting here having this conversation. So what the source look like for you? Mm, that's a great question. And it changes. So um, I was just actually working with the group on this. And sometimes it can be dark depending on where your body is at or your level of health at any given stage. Um, often now for me, it's light. Very often it's a, a gold or a very bright, white, clear light. And it's very peaceful and soothing and also quite powerful, quite frankly. How, how, <laughs> yeah. how long would you, would you sit for meditation? How long? Um, my regular practice, I like 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. That said, if it's, if it's really, if you deep, you just go with it. Some people need an hour to get to that place. But, you know, the, the biggest thing is, is just regularity. And so I, I always hesitate to tell people what I personally do because I want everybody to try what works for them. And I'm a huge believer that even like stopping in your car at a traffic light and taking three deep breaths and three long exhales can bring you back to sort of a centered place of self. What is the relationship between meditation and yoga? Well, there's in the traditional sort of classical sense, there's the eight limbs of yoga. You've probably heard of all those. And I don't want to get into teaching every single limb, but meditation is only one of those eight limbs. And it's traditionally seen to be sort of as the highest state. So unfortunately in America, what most of us know is yoga is asana or the physical hatha yoga practice because we want good bodies and we want to be strong. And But really those things were meant as exercises to prepare our body to be able to sit in meditation for periods, extended periods of time. So, so the, I would say meditation is the, the, the end purpose of yoga. Oh, the, the end purpose of the yoga. Yes. And then we are talking about calming the mind, mm -hmm. moving the body, mm -hmm. and this is not enough. We also need to feed the body mm. with something healthy and... Mm -hmm. um, nutritious. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, very much so. And again, um, there's a wonderful little book I love on this subject called the, um, 
The Yoga of Eating. And it's written by a, a great scholar named Charles Eisenstein. And it's very much about applying the principles of yoga, of listening to your inside, listening to your internal wisdom that we all possess. And when we are quiet enough, we hear our wisdom. And that's generally how eating works as well, if we're in alignment, if we're taking the time to be in alignment with ourselves. We all have those moments where we're like, I just want potatoes all day. <laughs> I just want, you know, whatever it is that you really want. And those generally when the craving is that strong and the desire is that strong, it's probably not what your body really needs. But that said, um, yes, feeding yourself clean or what we would call sattvic foods, which are peaceful foods like fresh fruits and fresh vegetables and juices and not fried, maybe just steamed, you know, less, less heating, more cooling for the body. What are the major differences or perhaps similarities between practicing yoga and practicing politics? Because I'm only now starting to talk about the last decade of studying yoga very privately and very seriously. One of the things is people say, well, you used to be this person and now you're this person, which is actually couldn't be further from the truth. Now I'm, it, it's and this and not that or, right? I was... I had a glitch, I'd say mid, mid decade where I was approached by um, Senator Jayapal, then a state senator, to run against the Republican incumbent in my district for the Senate seat of Washington State. And, you know, my ego got involved and I thought, oh, you know, I'm not supposed to be studying yoga. That's all wrong. I missed the boat. You know, I really am in politics. I, sh I should have known. And I got very wrapped up in the egoic pull of that for maybe six months. And it left me very distressed and very upset. And that's how I knew I immediately had stepped off my path because I do not believe when we are doing our or executing our highest purpose that we are constantly in distress. Yes, life always presents moments of distress, but it should not be a permanent state, quite the antithesis really. So I thought about it. I let all the important people talk to me and try to convince me and strong arm me. And luckily, some of them made some comments that made it very clear to me this was not the right path. And so I stepped back and one of the current House of Representative members said, you know, well, you're going to have to change your Facebook page because it's too out there. You're too hippie. And I was like, really? I said, I would invite you to and me to let me come speak to the House of Representatives and talk about why meditation could improve the work that they're doing and the legislation that they're writing day in and day out and their connectivity to their constituents, so on and so forth. But in my mind, it's very connected. And unfortunately, we are living amidst the disconnection right now on steroids. I mean, the lack of presence and, and mindfulness and equanimity that we're seeing at the every level of government to me is, is uh, why yoga is needed. Lara, do we have more women, more men? What mm. is the gender specification in the practice that you do? Right now, I couldn't tell you gender. Part of my love of my lineage really is that there is the current lineage holder, is a guru, is a female. And being Catholic and being brought up in a religion that I'm extremely grateful for and extremely rooted in, and uh, my love of the saints and the, and the, the sages of, of Catholicism is real. But 
not having any women in uh, religious leadership ended up leaving me feeling on the outside. So for starters, the fact that the the guru of the Siddha lineage is a female is very, very uh, meaningful to me, seeing a woman holding that much spiritual power and using it for the betterment of the entire globe. The bigger thing in yoga in the West, which should be addressed probably, Saida, is that it's eliminating a lot of races like Hispanics and African-Americans. And it's just for whatever reason, it was sort of picked up by primarily Caucasian, well-off, well-to-do women. And it's been to the exclusion of a lot of people who could truly, truly uh, be supported by practices that are meant for everybody, all, all walks of life, you know. Don't you think that perhaps meditation or yoga is so elite? Do I think it's elite? Yes. I, d- I don't. And I'll tell you why. I mean, and again, I'm a sample of one and I have my circle of people. So, for example, within the lineage that I study, there are people from all over the world. And I have some people who are African-American who do teach in the prison system, who do teach. Uh, there's a lot of people in Mexico, Latin America who follow particular teachings Um, I do think here it is. I mean, one of the things I struggle with, and this is full candor, why I've never, ever, ever taught publicly or spoken out about my own yogic practice is because there's so many people selling it as a business now. And that part does feel elite to me, that, that sort of yoking a sacred ancient tradition to sales just does not resonate with me at all. So um, in that sense, yes, I would say, I, I'm going to circle back and say it's, it does have an elitist capitalist bent at this point in white Western America. <laughs> sure. So in Islamic traditions, we mm-hmm. pray and it's a pray five times a day and it's just too much praying, too much <laughs> praying. And then in, uh, I'm thinking that probably this is a form of prayer. Yes. For for people who decide to 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 pray like this, what do you yes. think? I mean, this I is my thoughts. It is, and it's a beautiful and a wonderful thought, and I think it's very astute because ultimately, it's either all God or none of it's God. I mean, that's where I have come to my own realization. And you know, I remember once talking to a nun, and she she put it quite succinctly in the non-dualistic yogic traditions of saying. The reason there's so many religions and so many names for God and so many flavors of God is so that everybody has a chance to have a relationship with God. And I, I really find that to be, be the core of it. So my experience has been that whenever we meditate on an enlightened being or an enlightened concept, we have the opportunity to become more enlightened ourselves. Mm-hmm. And peace is, to me, certainly one of those enlightened concepts. I think meditation at large is the most important development practice because A, it's what allows us to get to the core essence of who and what we really are, which is so, so, so important because if people could only get there, only get there, I mean, the promise is you would understand how already whole, already perfect, already completely totally, incredibly powerful you are. So that's, that's really why. 
So I just disappeared for a few seconds to grab this one. I read it. It's on daily basis. Today's May 14 saying is, and I want your, your opinion over this. As long as you are not completely enlightened, there will always be an inner obstruction mm -hmm. to knowledge that will make your task of helping others incomplete. Yes. Yes. So, so true. I just had a thought about this today, that even when people, part of the reason I avoid any sort of label is because once you start to believe any sort of narrative about yourself, you A, limit the truth of what we are, and you B, your ego can easily attach to the new story you're using to tell yourself in order to say, oh, look, I'm out there. I did this for 10 years. I'm telling people what to do now. And that's a very, very dangerous trap of the mind. I was just sort of reminding myself, you know, be, be very, very gentle with this. You know, the best thing to do and the most difficult thing to do is brace yourself, everybody, because we're not taught this, but is to really try to hold on to a non-identity as much as you can, because it's in that space of non-identification that we actually have the expansiveness to grasp the totality of what we really are. You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. There are wealth of information about my guests, and I'm going to include Lara's program on goldtoon.com. You can find about her, her work, and what she's up for. So you'll find all of those on goldtoon.com. When you go to goldtoon.com, please do sign up for our email list. I would be really, really appreciated. My guests for next episodes are Coleman Barks and Omid Safi. Coleman Barks is a poet himself and he's translator of Rumi's poems. He has done a remarkable job of translating Rumi. Due to his translation, Rumi sold in the United States more than any any American poets in the United States, including Walt Whitman, Sylvia Plath, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, all combined between 2006 and 2009. Omid Safi also teaches uh, Sufi. He's a professor at the Duke University. We are going to have conversation about Rumi and Sufism. And with Jordan Denari Duffner, she's a PhD candidate in Georgetown University and author of Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me better Catholic. You can find uh, the conversations on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast, where I post the edited version of our conversation on those streams. In this hour, I'm talking with Laura Sanderson. Laura Sanderson was at the height of her political career when she worked as a lobbyist for higher education and leader for government and community affairs in greater Seattle area. Laura was shining star at the time. Due to her collaboration with different European countries, she was able to create a greater understanding of transatlantic relations to create a new forms of collaboration. However, 
she decided to give all up for or not or not give all up but for for the time being she decided that she would like to pursue something more meaningful in her life and through her awakening journey uh, we are learning from her about what she's done and what she's learning and i'm so grateful that she's sharing many of those informations with us so i want to know how your how your spiritual journey you think i think is um, helping the planet mm. but how do you think that your spiritual journey really is tr- transformative oh well i certainly hope it's helping the planet too <laughs> cuz she really needs it <laughs> so um yes it's interesting i w- i wanted to go back to the time that i was doing the marshall fellowship and working with so many diplomats in europe and one of the one of my aha moments even before i started studying yoga full time and meditation full time was being around these tables and you know parliaments various parliaments or nato and everybody in their title and their suit and their pins and their status and i'm watching these men and women argue and discuss things just completely through an egoic lens and it just hit me in my guts that so few of them had their personal life truly sort of knit together or uh, any sense of sort of deep personal awareness i thought to myself if they have no personal peace how are they ever going to create world peace and that was really where one of the my commitments to myself was to be very clear that i fostered peaceful heart within myself and to go to work on my own shortcomings to go to work on my own inability to do certain things with a peaceful heart and maintain equanimity in my own work so you are doing that not only through your meditation practice but also through the gardening yes. i am curious to know about the gardening well i like the joke i say when my mom passed away a year and a half ago she gave me her green thumbs She's like I'm leaving so you can have them. <laughs> I was not uh great in the garden even up to I'd say 4 year or maybe 5 years ago. But when Jeff and I we had a restaurant and when we closed that we still maintained a pea patch that was actually at the Jewish community center in our neighborhood. We thought, well, we should just use it for ourselves now. So for about a 4 year period we would go up every summer and grow a little vegetable garden and be of course completely in awe of the productivity and generativity of nature and we sort of fell in love with that it became sort of a ritual it became its own sort of meditation and then of course the beautiful produce you have it's very difficult to to enjoy store produce the same way once you learn to grow your own and it's also i would say where i very much started to become connected to i'll call it the feminine energy of the planet I mean it's exactly like as you know Saida giving birth it's a very powerful thing how you can take essentially nothing or something seemingly so small and create this huge living complex organism that does complex things or provides complex nutrition is just it's awe inspiring so I've mm-hmm. kept up with it So what do you have in your garden Oh I'm a little behind this year planting but We have uh fruit trees, we have squashes, we have grapes, we have raspberries, strawberries, blueberries, lettuces, tomatoes, cucumbers, kale, collards, rhubarbs. <laughs> lots. <laughs> yes, yes, lots of colors. Roses, roses for all of the 
people, the lovers out there. Many yeah. roses. I promised Razia, my friend, she is a journalist in Pakistan, works for one of the very large medias, to ask this question. She, in, in Facebook before our show, she asked, how can we lose weight with yoga and meditation, you think? You know, there's so many reasons people want to lose weight without knowing why she wants to lose weight. I, I'm a little bit reticent to address this, but I'm saying at the high level with yoga, Certainly, once we practice consistently, our body, usually assuming there's no underlying health conditions, will find a stasis point, which is healthy for it. You know, I know I've probably lost about 20 pounds just from taking better care of myself. And it's not, it hasn't been like that. Oh, something's wrong with me. I need to change. It's been from a place of self-awareness, really, and what my body does and doesn't want or need anymore. So not only gardening, you are also investing, you and Jeff, also investing on different projects. Yes. You invested on... Angels are made of light. So in Farsi is Farishtaha as Nur Shadan. It's beautiful. Even in mm -hmm. Farsi and in English, both are so beautiful phrases. But uh, how come, why did you decided to do, to, to invest in movies? In this um, movie in particular? Yeah, in particular, it's subject matters or documentaries um, and that cover subject that I feel help open people's views towards what peace is and, and towards and because I am such a lover of light and meditation and using light in my own Reiki practice or meditation meditation practice, um, the subject matter and how it was being presented was very personal. And James Longley, the documentarian who made this, has I would say angelic. Uh, cinemagraphic skills. He is so, so gifted the way he captures light through the camera. And in this case, it's connected to the children. And something I know you can relate to children in this case, growing up during war or extreme poverty, the beauty of the essence of who and what they are and what they remain, even in the face of these things. It matters to me because I think people forget this because we start to label them as different from us when we're really all cut from the same source. Beautiful. And the other thing that I can share is, you know, war is very atrocious and we do not understand the, mm. it's, it's, it's atrociousness. So at least to show some of those realities to the American public is very meaningful. We talked about so many, so many issues and I went go back and forth between different topics, but yeah. what we have not talked about, do you think? I think I would like to sort of strip away a little bit of the mystique around meditation and, and what it is. I mean, one of the most common things that I hear is there's such a hunger and such a thirst for peace, especially now. Um, a young woman said to me the other day, which just really hit me. It was such a beautiful description. She has just gotten into law school at an Ivy League school, incredibly smart. She doesn't even know if she's going to be moving in the fall because who knows if schools will even open. The political world, of course, is upended right now. People are having a very hard time finding out what is real news versus not real news. And she says to me, well, Lara, what, you know, what do you do when the, how can this stop the earth from crumbling underneath my feet? And I said, there's bad news and good news potentially here. I said, one is I can't stop the earth from crumbling underneath your feet. But what meditating can do is 
help you become comfortable with the earth crumbling. And I know certainly, Saida, for you, you know a lot about this growing up in a war-torn country, which is perhaps why you are on, and I would say maybe an advanced path, is that you have been able to do this and you have been able to parlay it into something that is healing for a greater audience. And I feel that way about meditation, that meditation is really a practice for everybody. You don't need to look a certain way or do yoga per se, or call yourself a yogi. Um, It's really important to understand that it's as simple um, as literally sitting down, closing your eyes, tuning into your breath. I mean, I'm even happy to close that uh, the last few minutes that way together. Um, But that it's not about having a perfectly still mind even. It's about making friends with your mind, accepting your mind as it is and learning to observe it. And over time, if you are consistent and you're consistent to tuning into your breath and taking a few minutes to be with yourself each day, you actually can bring yourself into it a completely um, different way of being despite what your external circumstances are. So why don't we do that just now, right now? <laughs> so I want to, uh, if you could, or see what's the, the most perceivable way for you to either say it. I mean, you, you say we are doing this and doing this. I, I want some, some kind of guidance, you know, as a teacher, if you wanted to teach, how do you do it for us? Most certainly, yes. So please, um, what we'll do just together here is at first I want you in your chair to find sort of a soft but upright position. So one of the ways that I like to begin is just straighten my back. I like to firm my sits bones. Your sits bones are kind of across from each other. Sort of wiggle around, just kind of get balanced on your sits bones on your chair. And then let your spine sort of just rise naturally upward and keep your chin sort of gently tucked. And just place your palms on your thighs And we'll start by taking a very deep breath in and a long exhale. Now just begin to scan your body from the ground up. Feel the soles of your feet softly meeting the floor. Imagine them even meeting the earth, the core of the earth. And just take your mind's eye up your legs into your groin. Allow your belly to relax and to soften. Maybe you can feel your heartbeat. And just gently begin to listen to your breath in a relaxed and curious manner. And now as you inhale, I want you to imagine your breath coming in through the crown of your head, descending deep into the root of your belly. And as you exhale, just let that breath rise back up your spine and out the crown.
And on your next inhale, take your mind's eye behind your back, maybe a couple inches behind your breastbone, sort of centered between your shoulders. And begin to direct your breath right into the cavity of your heart. And notice any sensations you're feeling in your body. They might be cramped or tight and you can breathe space into those areas. It could be softening, relaxing. Keep directing the breath into the heart center. And as you're able, allow that to just open the chest. Relaxing the whole body. And if you see a thought or two float by, that's all it is. It's just a thought. It's just energy. Now, if you're inclined, as you direct your breath into the area of the chest behind the breastbone, imagine a little golden light And as you breathe, let that light begin to radiate. Perhaps it reaches your skin. Maybe it goes beyond your skin, beyond your borders. Maybe it fills your body or surrounds your body. Notice how it makes you feel with no judgment. It's observation. As you're ready, just bring your attention back to your own breathing, your natural breath rate. If you need to sigh, you can sigh. Feel your connection to your chair, to the earth.
and very, very gently as you're ready. Just kind of soften your eyes. You can sort of even flutter them behind your eyelids before you open them just to sort of bring yourself to the place of being together again. And you can open as, as you're ready. <laughs> Hi. I was not cheating. <laughs> No. <laughs> I was not cheating. And I was just doing all the all the time. Um so I usually clench my my um teeth, but I didn't clench. That's yes. Yeah. Yes. Well I tried to just do a little mini bite size since we're we're close to the end here. So Yeah, so here <laughs> I've offered to my um my neighborhood to do a, a meditation once a week, once we're allowed, you know, but I'm looking for certain, you know, if there's ever a time for this practice, it's now. Um, now is the time because we can collectively shift a lot of the, the darkness that we're all sitting under doing by practicing meditations. Excellent, Laura. Thank you so much for all the information. Is there any final thoughts that you would like to share with us? Yes. I mean, I think there's there's a couple of things I would like to remind people. One is just uh, from my lineage of Swami Muktananda said, see God in each other, you know, see God in each other. Um, and it doesn't have to be God if you don't see God, but see the light in each other. See yourself in the person you're talking to understand that you know we all really are variations of one theme and uh, when we do that we have a much better chance of of brokering peace together than we do walking around imagining we're so radically different from everybody else the uh, appearances can be deceiving so just keep that in mind and I thought maybe I I brought this Saida at the beginning because I know you're a fan of Kabir, who was the mystic poet saint. And he's interesting because he came from Muslim family, but was very influenced by the Hindu bhakti or tradition of love and those yogic teachings. And the quote was, the pearl is in the oyster and the oyster is at the bottom of the sea. Dive deep. Larajan, stay with me for a second. You are watching to Peace Mindedly. It's a podcast show. I feature peaceful bridge makers. There are so many ways to find about my guest and about what she's up for. As I said, maybe she decides to do her meditation groups or meditation teaching and so forth. Usually at the end of the program, I ask my, my guest to close the program for us with something meaningful about peace and about compassion, kindness. I think Laura just shared so many of those issues with us but I'm just gonna <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm just gonna ask again if things about peace or something meaningful that you think you would like to share with us yeah mostly just right now especially right now people um, just love yourself to the fullest of your own your own capacity um, you know I always I didn't have kids of my own but I raised stepkids who were very meaningful to me and I I always said to them, you know, be sure to put on your own life mask before you try to to do that for others. So in this tenuous time, I just encourage everybody to take very good care of themselves, to be happy. It's okay to be happy even when there's tragedy. I know that's hard to imagine, but it's very important to keep some light and some laughter in your life where you can find it and be good to each other. Thank you so much, Lara. 
Thank you, Saida. Yes, yes. So much love to you. Yes. The same here. Thank you. Okay, blessings.